Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Yinka Shonabari. In the first exhibition of its new contemporary series, the Richard H. Driehaus Museum in Chicago is showing a tale of today. The exhibition surveys Shinabari's output, including photography and sculpture, installations, all presented within a notable Gilded Age mansion. As you may know, Shonabari has frequently referred to the excesses of the 19th century in his work. The exhibition was organized by the Driehaus and is on view through September 29th. On the second segment, Pintormo. But first, Yinka Shonabari, after a break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston is the only venue for the exhibition Vincent Van Gogh, His Life and Art. Portraits, landscapes, and still lifes drawn primarily from the collections of the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam and the Kroller-Muller Museum in Otterlo chronicle Van Gogh's evolution as an artist, opening March 10th. Visit mfah.org slash Van Gogh for more. How did previous generations deal with the prevalence and power of falsehoods, today's fake news? How does art, by embodying a different kind of truth, serve as both a party to and a shield against the lies we love to tell. On March 13th at the Getty Center, three panelists, Jennifer Cavanaugh, co-author of Rand Corporation's Truth Decay, Lee McIntyre, author of Post-Truth, and the New York Times critic A.O. Scott explore humanity's long-standing devotion to lies and whether we'll ever develop a healthier respect for the truth. Learn more at getty.edu 360. And we're back. Yinka Shonabari, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Well, hello. Thank you for having me. Back in the 1990s, when you were becoming an artist, painting interested you right from the start, be it Hogarth, from whom you borrowed characters and poses, or Rayburn, from whom you borrowed a skater, <laughs> and so on. I understand any artist's interest in painting. It's, it's kind of a foundational thing. But how did you come to accept paintings as an important as important historical documents to address, but then came to chose a different medium, sculpture and installation, for your work? I don't necessarily separate art into media. I just use any kind of vehicle of expression I feel suitable at the time. Painting is very important because of the history of art, and, uh, you know, the history of painting does provide a context for artists, but it's not the limits of my interests. One of the things about painting is is that it can be scaled in all kinds of different ways. Sculpture can too, of course. But in your work, almost always the figures are presented as life-size. How did you come to that being important? Um, I mean, I think that obviously people relate to art and they relate to the scale of art through their own body. You know, doing something human scale does make sense because, you know, I'm wanting the audience to relate directly to to the work on their own scale. So it seems kind of logical in that sense to be doing something on, you know, on human scale. But I don't, you know, I mean, there are times when there can be I like working with the scale of children too, and I, you know, I do that as well. Uh, but I think it—you very much want your audience to have some kind of empathy with what you're trying to express. So, you know, but it's not always all human scale in the sense that my public sculpture 
you know, I do do much larger public works of art. But that said, you know, even that scale is in relation to the human scale, if you like. Because if I want to do something monumental, of course, I have to then multiply uh, what that human scale is to give that kind of monumental effect. I think one of the the relationships in your work that is is most affecting is that in you know and at least in work in galleries, there's this moment between the figures being life size and not having heads, which I think really focuses viewers on on systems and how they work rather on individuals and what they do. You have spoken at length about how the lack of heads on your figures is a reference to the beheading of French aristocrats and the landed gentry during the French Revolution. Was it also about systems? Was it also about keeping individual, keeping viewers from focusing on people, individual people? Well, in many ways, yes. I think that because of the politics of race, I actually wanted to create uh, universal beings, if you like. And I didn't want people to be over-focused on a one-dimensional aspect of what a person looks like visually. You know, that's not to remove the origins from from those people, but that's just to say that actually, you know, there are universal ways in which we can actually be human, whilst also recognizing the multifaceted background of a person. So in other words, I, I'm never reductive about what a person is. You know, you may... You know, you may be from Latin America, but you may also have Japanese origins or have interest in Japan or even culturally, you may have lived in Japan for years and but be from Latin America. This is what I mean. I think the contemporary in the contemporary world, we tend to have isolated identities, um, layers of identities. And I wanted to express that in my work. Because actually, a lot of the kind of divisive conflicts in the world are usually based on people just reducing other people to one thing. Whereas I I tend to think that people are much more complicated than that. That almost makes it sound like it was more important or as important to remove faces than to remove heads. Well, I guess... (laughs) I guess you can't really have a face without a head. Uh, well, you could you could have a head, and it could be a blank mannequin face. Well, yes, I get I guess so, but but I think symbolically, anyway, that's why I don't necessarily have uh, fixed you know races in the work. But that's not to uh, you know as I said before, that's not necessarily to deny people's uh, cultural origins. It's just to make a point about the complexity of race itself. Was there a point in art school or, or shortly thereafter where you did have heads and faces in the work? Yes, earlier on. I mean, I, I, I did. But then most of my early training was actually based on, you know, life drawing and painting directly from the figure. So that was, I just painted what was in front of me then. Was there a, a, an, a single aha moment or, or realization that led you to decide to remove the heads? I think I came across a French critical theory and you know I was looking at the whole notion of deconstruction this was in the 90s and also you know representation and actually challenging kind of representation really and 
And then, you know, just looking at the way throughout history people have been represented. And I think so going through the 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 kind of grand narratives of the of the past, the kind of colonial narratives of the past, and then of course looking then looking at paintings and somehow wanting to do something different to the, to the received images of the past and by doing something different you know i mean decapitating cutting the heads off or an act like that which might seem actually violent is is not necessarily a violent in the realistic sense of the word but poetically it is and metaphorically it is violent so in a sense it's it's about uh, severing the canon, doing something to the canon, or changing the canon. And so that's kind of where that came from. I think one of the effects that, that removing the heads has is that it really focuses the viewer on the movement of the figure, or, or, or that the figure is suspended in a moment of, of action or movement. And in a conversation with Anthony Downey some, some years ago, you told him that one reason you started making film installations was because it allowed you to explore movement all the more. What about putting figures in motion, sculpturally, I'm speaking, mattered to you? Well, I mean, I think sculpturally, the whole issue of balance and movement, symmetry, asymmetry, you know, I mean, those things are important. And I think sculptures that are kind of animated in some way tend to be more interesting anyway to look at. And so I do like to have movement in my sculpture. You have spoken in recent years about how movement in in some of your public installations is a metaphor for travel and migration and diaspora. Did you intend movement in the figurative sculptures to have within them, uh, to have within it that metaphor, or, or did that come in later? I mean, it, it depends on the work uh, that I'm actually sort of making, but I do tend to, that can be read into into the work, you know, the movement of people, migration, but I think that essentially it's about the actual context of that sculpture. You know, what's the sculpture doing? What, what you know, what would be the relevant movement to that, you know, to what the sculpture is actually you know, doing. So um, it's very important to make the work, obviously, in relation to the context and what the sculpture is actually doing. But uh, generally, people don't gravitate towards something that's uh, static. You know, they want to see a bit of dynamism. You know, so it's also partly to create interesting forms. That's why I do use, like to use movements in the work. I find that when I'm walking through, say, the Greek and Roman galleries at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, that sometimes, you know, and there's a, there's a, there's a static marble figure in front of me, and, and sometimes I'll f- notice that I'm holding my breath a little bit, that I'm, I'm going out of my way to hold still before that, that sculpture. And I've noticed with your work over the years that it makes us walk around it. That, that, that the movement often in your figures, even if it's just a figure leaning over a desk writing, that, that because of the dynamism of, of, of your work, it really encourages the viewer to physically engage with it, which I think really works. 
Well, I mean, I think that one aspect of my work is, um, you know, the use of costume. And I sort of, if you like, deconstruct uh, Victorian costumes or 18th century costumes. And, and of course, the point about that as well is, is to bring popular culture into high art. So the fabrics, you know, I buy the fabrics from, you know, Brixton Market in London, and then I make the so-called sort of, you know, elitist colonial dress uh, with those fabrics. And the fabrics are Indonesian-influenced fabrics produced by the Dutch and then sold uh, in West Africa. And also, you know, now the fabrics are made in China. And of course, I started to use those fabrics because I was exploring the idea of authenticity. And I started exploring the idea of authenticity because one of my tutors when I was at college asked me, you know, I was making very political work at the time about what was going on in Russia. And I was making work about perestroika. And then he said, well, you're of African origin, aren't you? Why aren't you producing authentic African art? And I wondered what he meant by that. What is authentic British art? What is authentic African art in a globalized world? And so I started to actually juxtapose, quote-unquote, what might be considered African with, you know, with something European, so you brought up the fabrics, which are, I mean, there's almost nothing in contemporary art more recognizable than than um, a Yinka Shonabare at 50 paces. You know, you, you can see it before you get there almost. Was your intent when you first started using the fabrics in the 90s that it would become something that you would keep using, you know, for 25 years? Or did is it just kind of where you ended up? No, I mean, I think... Obviously, you know, asking a series of questions about, you know, authenticity and what that might mean, um, which was what got me started in the first place anyway, using the fabric. I didn't know how long I would go on using it for, but I, I felt, you know, I... Usually, the work that you made previously will raise new questions for the next thing that you're going to make. And so, and that's a kind of process. So there's no kind of premeditated, you know, intention to actually carry on for, you know, for so long. It's all about, you know, I just made that. And then while I was making that, I discovered, actually, you know, I could explore this in my next project. So because every project is a process of discovery, you know, I did not still be using those fabrics now, but I feel that my practice is almost like a chapter in a book, really. And, so you know, you write chapter one, chapter two, and then you want to write the next chapter. Uh, because there are always new ideas that you want to explore. And, and I guess that's basically what's happened. Some artists really like having a trademark look or a trademark image, you know, the Pollock drip or the, the Cy Twombly scribble and, and so on. Are you comfortable with that, or, or is it something that that you've had to kind of get used to? I mean, no. I mean, I think you know, I see the fabrics as a kind of lingua franca. It's a language, you know, and it's a language 
recognized by people interested in my work. And I feel that by keeping that language, I can continue to communicate with them. Next time they see a new piece of mine, it's almost like we're just carrying on from where we left off. So it's a conversation with my audience. And I'm, you know, and I'm completely comfortable with that. I, I think that a great illustration of how that works is how we see the fabric with, with figures in motion, but we also see the fabric around books in the library pieces from 2014 and last year that we'll talk about a little bit later. One last, one last thing about, about the fabric. You know, going back to the mid-90s, was there anything about it that you worried might not work? Not necessarily. I mean, I think that I actually had no idea that, you know, I would be doing as many shows as I now do. Um, you know, you make a gesture and then you get invited to do two more shows. And then, you know, from the two more shows, you get invited to do five more shows. And so you're not really thinking too much about, you know, how you're doing what you're doing. You're just, you know, you're, you're just trying to keep up with the work by expressing yourself. And, and, and like you said a moment ago, the language grows, you know, to use a language is to, is to grow the language. A couple years ago, in a group of works exhibited together in a show called And the Wall Falls Away, you showed sculptures that featured batik motifs that were part of the sculptures you were presenting, that were printed on the figures, if you will, rather than printed onto textiles that the figures then wore. What did removing textiles from the equation allow you to do, and what did you learn from doing that? Well, I mean, I was actually looking at classical sculpture and the white marble classical sculpture. I was reading about them. Then I discovered that those sculptures were not always white. I discovered that there was a German historian called Johann Winkelmann who promoted this idea that the white of the sculpture uh, meant the superiority of the Aryan race. And, you know, those sculptures were actually originally painted and they were never white, but he felt that, you know, the whiteness of the sculpture somehow meant that that was high art. Of course, you know, the colors had faded over time. And I felt that, you know, because Romans actually took their, you know, they were inspired by the Greeks. And, you know, and I felt that a lot of things are actually not necessarily entirely originating from one place. You know, they're usually several influences. And I decided I would actually transfer some of the fabric patterns onto the kind of high art, you know, classical sculpture. And so that's kind of the origins of that, of those pieces. It really changes the work instead of, you know, it, it arrests them in a, in a moment. You don't get kind of the, the movement of the textile or the tactility of it. Did you miss anything about having cloth as part of the work? Not necessarily, because I feel that you know, I've developed the language of pattern to a point where people might then be able to understand the uh, the progression of the of the work and why I would actually want to, you know, stretch uh, the work even further. When there's the next big career-spanning Shonabare survey, that's going to be quite a room to get to. I, I think it will show that really well. 
the colors in your textiles and in and and in your film installations for that matter are are always turned up way way up super bright obviously of course dutch wax fabrics are brightly colored and that seems straightforward enough but on the other hand you've broken lots of other rules you know most people have heads right <laughs> so why have you decided to keep the color as turned up and bright as you have instead of you know maybe maybe using black and white or turning it down what what about the brightness of the color is crucial traditional european culture i mean as i as i mentioned before you know would be a dark color that would be considered in a good taste not to be so loud with the color and i'm very interested in kind of just pushing the boundaries of taste and pushing the boundaries of what may be what may have historically been considered acceptable and you know pattern and popular culture is you know frowned on so I decided, you know, go the other way. Your work is very often very funny. And I'll ask about a specific example or two in a minute. But was there an artwork or maybe a teacher, an art school, or a colleague that that gave you permission to be funny in your work? Some someone or something that made you think, sure, why not? Humor can be can be part of the thing. Well, I mean I think that in the nineties and post you know post colonial theory was was kind of a very serious affair you know, it was incredibly serious i mean I was reading people like you know um Edward Said and Gary Spivak and it was very important to have serious discourse of course, but I felt that I wanted to you know just bring a bit of humor into it i mean of course it's gallows humor it's a bit dark. You know, and that's my own way of kind of exploring some of these issues. So it's not always dark. I, I mean, there, you know, so take your 2013 Last Supper after Leonardo, which is a, a large installation, and there are flowers on the table. So why are there flowers on the table? And then, of course, what did you make the flowers out of and why? It was a very political work. It was about the the financial crash, actually. So it was, it was you know, so in that sense, it was the Last Supper. And of course, you know, within the kind of financial world, you know, there's power, there's betrayal, all of the things that are true about, you know, the Last Supper. You know, and some people, of course, you know, they, they, they worship mammon, uh, and money for them is religion in a way. And so I thought that that was a, you know, a very interesting metaphor to use. And the flowers was really an experience of opulence in a way. The flowers are are made as so you know the actual flower at the at the end of the stalk is made from the your, your trademark Dutch wax fabrics and, and they look like tulips or at least they look like tulips to me. I'm not maybe a flower expert. Is that a a specific sly winking reference to uh, the history of Dutch capitalism? <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, the the kind of crash. Yes, of course. What happened in in Holland? You know, so that was a, there was a reference in there to the financial crash or the overblown. You know, and as you know, a lot of people lost money um, in Holland around that you know issue. You know, so there are little things that are put into the work. 
you know, they're not. They're kind of little messages, but they're not sort of, you don't necessarily have to get get it, you know, as long as you can engage with the overall installation, if you see what I mean. You made a bunch of work about the late 2000s, early 2010s financial crash. Another one is 2009's Crash Willie, in which a figure appears to have been killed or, or badly injured anyway in an open wheel car that has a license plate that reads FTSE, which is is short for the Financial Times Stock Exchange, uh, a reference to the FTSE index, and, and, and the, uh, the Last Supper after Leonardo's 2013. So this is a, a four-year period. Why do you think the financial crash sustained your interest for so long? Well, I mean, most of the politics that we discuss, you know, from war to homelessness to environmental decay, almost always revolve around finance. People don't really bother to fight wars if there are no resources to fight about. And, you know, inequality creates homelessness. Over-exploitation of the environment is always about money. I mean, it's almost every topic you think about, you can literally trace back to some kind of financial issue. So, you know, it continues to be important. And, of course, the relationship between art and money, especially now, has become even more important. I think one of the things about your work I like uh, and enjoy the most is the way it mines history and presents history as relevant in, in the here and now. Another work in which you addressed a very specific historical event, this one from the past, is the two-object pairing of Nelson's jacket and Fanny's dress from 2011. Um, Nelson's jacket is a riff on Nelson's uniform from, from the Battle of Trafalgar, which is installed at, I think, the National Maritime Museum. For listeners who aren't up on their British history, Nelson triumphed over Napoleon at the Battle of Trafalgar, a victory which confirmed British 18th century naval gains and which set the stage for British maritime domination of the 19th century. Your Nelson's jacket is true to the original down to the metals. Of course, it's done in your, your, your trademark fabrics. My, 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 there's a long way to, 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 to this question. There is a bullet hole from the French sharpshooter who hit Nelson um, and, 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 and killed him in that battle, visible in the left shoulder of, of Nelson's actual coat, a kind of moment from the past suspended in the present. Is the bullet hole in your coat? Uh, you know, I actually don't think it is. I don't think it is. But then I may be wrong, because I did that work a while back now. <laughs> uh, I don't think it is, no. And perhaps I, I thought it was sort of, you know, my cap to do that. I don't know. So in that piece, which which plays with gender, which I guess I'm kind of kind of setting to one side, were you attracted to that historical moment because it was kind of a pivot, something that set the stage for, you know, the, the Victorian era and, 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 and the enormous wealth that, that, that Britain accrued during that period? Or was there something else about that moment that, that, that you wanted to address? Well, I mean, I think my own identity, you know, is really based on that relationship between Europe and Africa. You know, Nelson's victory at the Battle of Trafalgar, in a way, enabled that, you know, to become as, um, you know, widespread as it was at the time. And then, of course, I made 
Nelson's shipping a bottle in Trafalgar Square. A fourth plinth installation, yeah. Yeah, a fourth plinth installation. And I think that, as I said before, you know, usually a work of art does tend to lead to other things in the future. And so the process of doing that work and doing the research made me want to develop that project further. And that's why I did the works, you know, the Nelson's jacket. I got to admit, when I was preparing to talk to you and, and, I, and I was looking at the dates on Nelson's ship in a bottle and Nelson's jacket, and I saw they were 2010 and 11, and it kind of surprised me that you didn't tackle Nelson and Trafalgar, you know, 15 years earlier. <laughs> it, it, it seemed like such a good fit. <laughs> yes, I, I think the, I mean, the opportunity to put something in Trafalgar Square you know, came along at that time. Because, as you know, the fourth plinth is a competition. So, really, you do have to be chosen to do it. And that was when that opportunity came along, and I was able to actually, you know, explore that further. A few moments ago, you mentioned the work you made based on or riffing on Degas' Girl Ballerina, in which, in, in your work, the girl is holding a gun behind her back. I love it. It's it's one of my favorite pieces of yours. It's smart and funny and opens up a number of histories, including those related to the exploitation of girls. It's also one of your more literal takings of a pose from a familiar art historical work. As you think through how pointed a quotation you take from another artwork, what helps you decide how direct to be? Or maybe to put it another way, why does such a direct quotation work for you? Well, I'm very interested in the collective consciousness, and I like to use iconic works because I feel that I can, my audience will have an easy key into the work, and especially if a work is being humorous, you need to do that within familiar territory so that people kind of, you know, get where you're going with something. I mean, not necessarily like an equation, you know, it's not always two and two equals four. I mean, they, they might bring other things to it, but I think that um, starting from a bit of knowledge is a good way to get into a work. Well, speaking of that, at the Metropolitan Museum of Art last year, in a show titled Like Life, curator Luke Sison, co-curator Luke Sison, um, who's now, who's no longer at the Met, he's now the director of the Fitzwilliam at Cambridge. In Like Life, your piece was installed about six or eight feet from a Degas, and they were kind of staring at each other, looking right, each other, right at each other. First, did you see the installation? And two, if you did, what did you think of your work being so directly paired with, with, its, pre- with, with its predecessor, if you will? <laughs> well, I mean, I saw lots of pictures. Unfortunately, I couldn't actually be in New York at that time to see the exhibition. But I thought that was very smart. I thought that was you know, a very smart you know, installation. I think that obviously that work is based on Dega and then to have the real thing there, I think added um, another dimension to the piece. And that must have created uh, some kind of tension between the two pieces. Oh, there was tension. <laughs> there was a lot of tension. <laughs> yeah, especially the surprise of then finding that, you know, the so-called innocent-looking young girl actually could be very dangerous and could, you know, very happily defend herself. 
so I, I thought that you know that was smart. Yeah, the vulnerability being turned upside down in what with the way you addressed the work was was it was it was a I I I walked around a corner of the show and then you know as you walk around a corner of the show all of a sudden this pairing was in front of you you know kind of unexpectedly it was it, it was a good moment of art and art historical theater <laughs> so there are other other artworks you you've you've quoted pretty directly all of which made me wonder are there works in art history you've considered quoting but have rejected because it didn't quite fit i mean not not at this point i'm pretty sort of direct in the sense that you know i have a number of art historical imagery in my head that you know i want to subvert or engage with in one way or the other and so i guess you know things like mr and mrs andrews the gainsborough and mr and mrs andrews without their heads and um, that was fun to do and also uh, the fragonas uh, the, the swing as well and Yes, you know, so I think that I just go to, depending on what, I, what I'm trying to explore, I guess, I think of a work that fits. And I don't, you know, I don't always do that, but sometimes, you know, I mean, I did, I did do that more in the past, you know, and I, I think that art is essentially contextual. And so the background of history and art history is always there. I mean, any mark you make, uh, somebody, somebody's probably made a similar mark in the past, or, you know, and I think, you know, as an artist, one should actually understand that and, and understand the context of, of art history and then reference that either consciously or unconsciously. But whatever you do anyway, you, you are referencing things uh, by default, even if you don't know you're doing that. You mentioned Mr. and Mrs. Andrews. It's one of a number of works of yours in which the figures in your work are holding guns. Perhaps the most famous one is your National Gallery um, installation in London from 2007. So I understand you, you've talked a good bit in the past about, about guns and your reference to a certain privilege within sporting culture wherein guns are, 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 are used um, you know, against foxes. Was there a single artwork that brought the guns in, or or did your interest in, in using and wielding guns and the suggestion of violence, and in the case of the National Gallery piece, kind of the actual floating remnants of violence come from somewhere else? Well, in relation to the National Gallery piece, um, I had actually removed uh, portraits of two slave owners uh, at the National Gallery and replaced them with those sculptures shooting a pheasant. I wanted to explore violence of slavery, but I didn't want to be necessarily literal about it. So, the, And then, of course, I also wanted to reference class as well, wealth and class and um, exploitation, and I chose the metaphor of shooting the peasant to do that. But generally, I, I use guns as a way of, I guess, exploring violence and power. And then sometimes it's also a way of exploring contradictions and paradox, for example, with the Galvalorina piece as well, uh, so that something which is meant to be pleasant can suddenly be explosive or explode in your face. And so there are different ways in which I've used guns in my work. 
as an American, where where guns are kind of just a horrific daily thing here, one of, one of my reactions to to the way you use guns in your work is that an American couldn't do it. You know, the guns are are so frequently and repeatedly uh, used in mass killings here that that they're a tough thing for um, an artist to take up, even referencing in an historical manner. And I, and I think that, um, that 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 having those works in the U.S. made by a non-American artist makes <laughs> makes a different address possible. A little earlier on, we talked about your libraries. There's the American Library uh, at the Front Triennial in Cleveland that you made last year, kind of an American update of a 2014 British project. What was the moment in Britain you were addressing in 2014, and why did you want to revisit uh, that idea for uh, a large American work? Well, I mean, you know, two obvious things. I mean, in Britain, we had Brexit, which I'm sure you know about. And then in the U.S., you, you had... The, <laughs> You, you you had well how shall I say your your new president and his wall and uh, so both things do relate to the issue of intolerance and xenophobia and I wanted to acknowledge the contribution that immigrants you know uh, have made in both both places it seemed obvious really uh, with the new government in the United States that. Uh, that particular issue, especially as he had actually been elected on his promise to build a wall. And, you know, so the relationship between the immigration issue and, you know, and and elections and winning power based on um, mass intolerance, basically. One of the things that work, or, or those works, got me thinking about was the building and dissemination of knowledge and and kind of where knowledge that we too often read as Western in origin com- comes from. So, for example, in the early Christian era, in the first few centuries of the Common Era, when Christendom was particularly strong in Northern Africa, one of the world's greatest and most important libraries was at a site called the White Monastery or White Monastery near Sohag in the, in the Middle Nile region. That library was far larger than the libraries of then contemporary Western Europe. Is some of your interest in using books and libraries as as a metaphor for movement rooted in longer-tailed stories about knowledge and its dissemination? I mean, I think that you know the use of libraries in this case was really a way to hold the autobiography of those people named on the, on the spines of the books. You know, I felt that people who were immigrants to yeah. That people come with histories, they come with stories, they come with, you know, folklore. They, 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 you know, they have their culture, and all of those things are, in a way, their libraries. And those libraries could either be oral or written, you know. So libraries are a way of actually holding the, you know, collective stories of people. Uh, and there is something fascinating about, you know, the library in itself and what it represents, you know, it, it holds it holds a body of knowledge. And I thought that that was a kind of a, in a good vehicle to explore those issues. I wanted to raise uh, one of your more direct addresses with the United States, a piece from, from 2005, uh, sculptures of Eleanor Hewitt and Sarah Hewitt, which were installed at the Smithsonian Institution's Cooper Hewitt Museum that year. The Hewitts built a collection of rare textiles and decorative arts during the Gilded Age. 
obviously I understand kind of the Cooper Hewitt textiles link to, to your work and your interests. But probably even in 2005, you could, you know, early, you know, 15 years earlier in your career, you could pretty much pick and choose your projects. Why, why was the Hewitt story a Gilded Age story that interested you and that was worth dipping into? Well, I mean, they built, you know, a fascinating collection. They were really, you know, they were very different kinds of people. You know, they were kind of outsiders in a way. They traveled extensively. Um, they were quite bohemian. I thought they were very interesting, and I thought that also what they did for women's education as well, I thought was really great. And and that collection is really fascinating as well. So when I was actually approached and, you know, they let me, you know, I was able to actually choose whatever I wanted within the collection, and I created a show and then inserted those two women as two towering figures with a silk. You know, so the experience, I mean, you know, I did that a while back now, so I don't actually recall in detail all of the stories I had actually read at the time, but I just thought they were really fascinating people. We talked a little earlier about uh, the financial crisis of the late 2000s and, and early 10s and how you addressed that in a couple of artworks. You know, here in America, the current economic period is frequently referred to in the press as the New Gilded Age given that inequality levels here are higher than they were during the first Gilded Age in the 19th century. So a lot of your stories are rooted in colonial era inequality, and you update them for the present. Is today's inequality something that particularly interests you, especially in relation to the past? Well, you know, unfortunately, we think of history as being linear, particularly modern history. We, we, we talk about progress and so on. And actually, unfortunately, the bad news is that we're not, that there is no progress as such. I mean, I think we're more or less, you know, doing the same is not worse. And so there's, you know, we, we have new forms of feudalism and, and also new, new forms of mass oppression of a lot of people. And most of it actually based on capital. You know, so I don't, think that we've actually made the kind of progress we might imagine we've made. And so I think those are things that I explore in the work. But primarily, I mean, yes, I, I'm interested in those issues, but I think that at the end of the day, you know, I'm an artist and I think I do want the pieces to stand up as, as art. I may explore some of the dark, dark aspects of humanity in the work, but the works should still the, the art. Finally, we spoke kind of at the very beginning about how the uh, wax fabrics you use in your work are now made in China. China in recent years and decades has been increasingly reaching into Africa and, and South Asia in a kind of economic colonialism. Your work has tended to address the impacts and effects of European imperialism and to point to its continuing impacts. Are you interested in how non-European countries establish empire and, and kind of economic colonialism in, in the present day? And is that something that you think your language can address, even if it's not Western? Well, I mean, I, I think that all forms of imperialism are about kind of domination, if you like. And, and it's, you know, it's the human instinct to expand and gain more resources. And I think that 
my my own experience is the British colonial experience. You know, so I can't really speak to what other uh, air, you know regions are doing because I don't have enough knowledge. But I think the the principle remains the same. Yinka Shonabare, thank you so much. Well, thank you. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, presents Pop America, 1965-1975, the first exhibition to present a hemispheric vision of pop art. Visitors who know and love pop art for its engaging imagery will rediscover pop as a verb, a strategy for communicating powerful content throughout the Americas. The exhibition shows how Latin American and Latino and Latina artists made a significant contribution to this artistic period. Pop America features nearly 100 works by a network of Latino and Latina and Latin American pop artists connecting Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, Cuba, Mexico, Peru, Puerto Rico, and the United States. Pop America is the culmination of groundbreaking research by guest curator and Duke professor Esther Gabara. The first ever Sotheby's Prize was awarded to Pop America last year. On view February 21st through July 21st at the Nasher Museum. Visit nasher.duke.com. Welcome back. My next guest is art historian Bruce Edelstein, who, along with the Gettys Davide Gasparotto, has curated Miraculous Encounters, Pintormo from Drawing to Painting. It's at the J. Paul Getty Museum through April 28th. The exhibition most prominently features Pintormo's visitation from 1528-29 and a drawing for the work. Edelstein is the Coordinator for Graduate Programs and Advanced Research at New York University in Florence. The excellent catalog for the presentation, which includes a wealth of conservation-related information, was published by the Getty. Amazon offers it for $38. Bruce Edelstein, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Before we get to the visitation and a couple of the related works in, in the show at the Getty, let's talk about our traditional understanding of Pintormo as descended from Vasari and how it's changed in recent years. Um, how did uh, Vasari in, in the second edition of Lives present Pintormo? And what have we learned in the last decade or two that's kind of altered our understanding of Pintormo's life and work? Tali, that's a fantastic question. Thank you. Thank you for starting off with that. You know, um, for those of us who study the 16th century, and particularly 16th century Florence, we are so fortunate to have a source like Vasari, who is, uh, by many people's estimation, the very first art historian. He lived and worked in Florence, although he was born outside of the city in Arezzo. Uh, and the culmination of his career was as uh, a kind of arts czar at the court of Duke, later Grand Duke, Cosimo Primo de' Medici. And the lives was his calling card. It was, it was what got him that job at the, uh, at the Medici court in uh, after 1550 when the first edition was was published and it was so successful not only for him career-wise but uh, also as a publication that he decided to revise and expand it uh for the 1568 edition and in the first edition he had only included one living artist and that was michelangelo it was very very clear that uh the kind of triumphal progress of art that Vasari saw beginning more or less with Giotto, passing through Masaccio and Leonardo da Vinci, culminated in Michelangelo. It was a very clear direction. Uh, for the second edition of The Lives, 
he now had a new problem. There were several very important artists that he knew personally uh, who had died uh, between when he had written the first edition and the second edition. And so it was appropriate to include them. And at that point, he also decided to include some of his living contemporaries. So Pontormo is one of the most important of these people, and he uh, gets one of the longest lives that Vasari wrote. Now, uh, because Vasari and Pontormo knew each other personally, because they had both studied at different points with Andrea del Sarto, and because Vasari makes a very, very specific point in his biography of Pontormo of saying that he had gotten all of his information about Pontormo directly from Pontormo's most beloved pupil, who was Bronzino. We have always taken what Vasari has said about uh, Pontormo at face value. And in the last uh, two, three decades, as part of a larger process of reevaluating truthfulness in Vasari's accounts uh, versus their literary qualities, the level of fiction, uh, how much these are things that were constructed, and uh, how all of the lives, uh, in, in essence, were constructed as part of a project um, not just to aggrandize Michelangelo, but to aggrandize Vasari himself and to identify what his own importance was, to create prototypes for uh, the kind of career that he hoped to have, and so on and so forth. And no one more than Pontormo uh, fits this mold of somebody who required rescue from what seemed like a truthful account of his life. And um, this situation was complicated with Pontormo because uh, on the one hand, again, Vasari asserts the veracity of his account, but then also Pontormo was really rediscovered in the early 20th century following the invention of Freudian psychology. And uh, with the rediscovery shortly after the beginning of the 20th century of something that was misidentified as Pontormo's diary, uh, scholars started to view Pontormo with modern eyes as the embodiment of the neurotic, of the Freudian neurotic. And uh, in some ways, he, he became a kind of uh, precursor for uh, artists of the uh, shell-shocked generation following World War I. And of course, all of these things were completely ahistoric. Uh, we discovered that the so-called diary was nothing of the sort, and that the things that seemed most odd in the diary, for example, his apparently obsessive recording of the things that he ate, uh, was simply the product of the fact that he had uh, undersigned a contract to have food provided to his home, and he was keeping a register of what his expenses were. And with Vasari, um, as we started to pick back through the life, we discovered that there were things that he left out, uh, ways in which he seemed to be complimenting Pontormo, but that uh, in essence were not complimentary terms for his own day. And it became very, very apparent that what Vasari was doing was seeking to uh, construct an image of the artist that diminished his uh, reputation for posterity and thus ensured that he would not, even from beyond the grave, be an excessive competitor to Vasari himself. So it's, it, am I right in thinking that from Vasari forward, there came to be this understanding of Pontormo as a little bit erratic, a little bit disordered, and the idea was that this could kind of be seen in his mannerist work? Absolutely. Um, this also fit into a larger scholarly concept that mannerism was uh, an anti-classical uh, phase of Renaissance art and that it reflected 
crisis, both um, moments of crisis in contemporary history, uh, things like the sack of Rome or the siege of Florence, uh, which is very to the point in regard to the exhibition currently at the Getty, uh, and also personal crisis, that these were uh, people who are undergoing uh, spiritual or um, emotional kinds of crises that were reflected in an art that was in some way the uh, reflection of this psychological state. We'll come back to that a little bit later when we talk about the drawing for the visitation that's in the show. Um, but let's turn to the painting. Um, there's an image on manpodcast.com, of course. The painting, uh, I'll, I'll briefly describe it. It shows Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, um, said to be or determined to have been around 80 um, when um, when she was uh, with child. Uh, Elizabeth meeting Mary um, on a public street. Um, so according to the book of Luke, which I think is the only gospel that tells the story of of the Virgin Mary and Elizabeth meeting, in, in Luke, they meet in a private home. Why does Pintormo uh, set his scene in, in a city street? This is an excellent question. Um, of course, one of the great mysteries about the visitation is where it was originally intended for. And we do not know still to this day. We can hypothesize what its uh, possible uh, purpose was, uh, where it was destined to go, but no one has ever found documents to identify the specific altar for which it was destined when it was commissioned. So this remains a big question, and that might help to explain why uh, Pontormo chose to deviate from the sole source in the Gospels for this subject. However, uh, it's also true that Pontormo did not uh, do this for the first time. He was following a long-standing tradition in Florence. And in fact, uh, one of the most surprising things as I began to study this painting in preparation for uh, this exhibition was how compelling a model was furnished by something made 250 years before Pontormo conceived of his painting. And that is a mosaic in the Florence Baptistry showing the same subject. And in this mosaic, we find Mary and Elizabeth greeting, not inside the home of Zechariah, Elizabeth's husband, but out on a street in front of the door leading to the home. And this is what we see in Pontormo's painting as well. Two things about the painting immediately strike me and probably anyone who, who, who walks up to it. Uh, one, so you have these four figures, um, Elizabeth and, and Mary, and then behind them, looking out at us, are, 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 are their servants, their handmaiden, maidens? What's the plural of handmaiden? Handmaidens, yes. Yeah, handmaidens. Um, and, 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 and so this intersecting plane of gazes, the, the, the Mary and Elizabeth looking at each other and the two other women looking at us, it creates kind of an extraordinary uh, spatial geography that's redundant, but also kind of this moment of, I don't know, it pulls us into the painting, pulls, pulls, creates a certain tension that overlaps with the warmth of, of, of the way the two women greet each other. Um, and then the other thing that, that, that strikes anybody before the painting is, is the scale of the figures in the foreground and how it exists relative to the buildings and the figures in the background. Um, first, are those two things related pictorially um, or iconographically? I, oh yes, I certainly think they are, yes. Uh, one Certainly one of the most compelling things about Pontormo's painting, and I think one of the things that resonates particularly with modern viewers, I think when we look at Pontormo's painting, rightly or wrongly, we are struck by its overwhelming modernity for a work of art that was made 
some 500 years ago. And um, part of that is through this um, very careful construction of uh, the figural composition and the relation of the figures to their setting. Pontormo, following this tradition that we can perhaps see originating in the mosaics of the Florence Baptistry in the 13th century, uh, follows this long-standing tradition of showing the encounter between Mary and Elizabeth taking place on a city street. And uh, because in the Middle Ages and in the Renaissance, it, was, it would have been inconceivable uh, to any devout viewer that um, proper women would leave their homes unattended. Already in the Baptistry mosaic, we find both Mary and Elizabeth accompanied by handmaidens. Now, in a Florentine social organization, uh, women of a certain standing, when they were married, uh, probably received for the first time uh, a personal servant of this sort. And most frequently, these women were of about the same age as the young women who were uh, being married. They would in essence, grow old together. And this is why when we see the handmaiden who is behind the Virgin Mary, she is young, like the Virgin herself. And the uh, woman who is accompanying St. Elizabeth is about the same age as St. Elizabeth herself. They have grown old together before the uh, remarkable and equally prodigious um, pregnancy of St. Elizabeth, who as an older uh, woman has become pregnant as well. And through this idea, Pontormo came up with something that was uh, extraordinarily original. He's following in a long-standing tradition, a visual tradition of some 250 years, but he does something that is completely new. He faces the protagonists towards each other so that they are solely engaged in the process of exchanging their uh, miraculous greeting. And he turns the handmaidens out towards us frontally. Uh, these women look at us as the viewers outside. They are um, in some ways intimidating, but they are also inviting us to take part and to bear witness to the miraculous event that is happening in front of them and in front of us. Uh, Pontormo also chose to represent all of these women on an enormous scale, a scale that he um, makes extremely clear, not just through the size of the painting, but by thrusting all of the figures towards the foreground of the painting, uh, and then using um, a particular version of the one-point perspective system perfected by Brunelleschi and described by Alberti in the 15th century to create a very, very rapidly receding uh, architectural setting of a city street in Florence which augments this sensation of the figures being thrust towards us. They appear therefore even larger in comparison to the surrounding buildings and to the other figures present on the panel. The painting underwent um, extensive conservation about five years ago. Did that process reveal anything to us about that background, about the buildings, about the, the city street? So the recent conservation of the painting um, was surprising in so many ways. Uh, first of all, there were scientific analyses uh, performed in preparation for the, uh, for the conservation that revealed some remarkable things about Pontormo's working process. But uh, the cleaning itself revealed that the uh, painting had been uh, much more overpainted than any of us had imagined beforehand. And in a not particularly sensitive uh, restoration probably 
executed in the 1950s in Florence, somebody did things that we would never do today. Uh, the sky over the buildings on the right-hand side was painted out. The steps leading up to the building that must be identified as a church or a public structure on the right of the painting uh, were not clear. And on the left, even more dramatically, a woman leaning out of the uh, second story of the palace on the left-hand side of the painting had been completely painted out, along with a donkey peeking his little head around the corner of the building. And uh, other very insensitive things have been done to the two figures uh, located at the entrance of the palace itself. So these are just some of the details. Many other things emerged as well. For example, Pontormo had um, included in the cubic structure uh, uh, on the right-hand side of the painting, uh, the representation of water stains as rainwater had dripped down the plaster work of that cubic structure. And none of those things were visible prior to this recent conservation. These are remarkable details uh, that were clearly important to the painter. They were part of how he created an environment that would have been extremely recognizable to uh, viewers in his own time, one that would have helped to bring the uh, gospel story to life and to make it something that they could relate to uh, as if it were something taking place in their very own city at their very own time. Two of the three essays in uh, the short 160 pages, but very good uh, catalog for this show deal with um, the, the, the conservation and treatments of, of the painting over the years, especially, of course, the most recent one. We'll have a link to, to, to purchasing the catalog on manpodcast.com. I mentioned that the visitation is shown uh, with a drawing from the Uffizi and, and that, that the drawing in a way served as kind of a rejoinder to, um, to, to the idea of, of kind of the, the wild-eyed spontaneous Pintormo. What do you hope uh, visitors get from, from being able to stand in front of the drawing and turn 70 degrees to their right and, and see the painting? So uh, being able to unite the painting and the drawing together was uh, the very at the very heart of this exhibition. It was uh, my first idea for um, what I wanted to do around the, uh, the visitation of Carmignano that had never been done before. And uh, it was particularly important for historic reasons because the Carmignano visitation unusually is not mentioned by Vasari, who apparently did not know the work. Vasari had left Florence during the period of the terrible imperial siege uh, between 1529 and 1530. He was too closely associated with the Medici and it would have been dangerous for him to stay. And he fled to Lucca on the um, western coast of, of Tuscany. So it is possible that he simply did not know the work. Um, we find the work mentioned for the first time only in the second half of the 17th century. And interestingly, the person who described the work actually described the drawing. Um, he then went on as a kind of afterthought to say, and this beautiful drawing that I'm describing uh, is for a, an altarpiece that I believe is in the villa of the Pinadori family in Carmignano. So this is the very first historic reference to the painting. And uh, from the, in essence, from the very beginning of, of scholarly discussion of the painting, of anyone knowing anything about the painting, it has been associated with this drawing. And unusually, uh, scholars had somehow doubted that this drawing was the one that was referred to uh, by this scholar in the second half of the 17th century uh, named Cinelli. Um, 
And part of what we've been able to do is to prove that this was, in fact, the drawing that Cinelli must have seen. And this has become possible uh, solely because of the uh, conservation that was done uh, five years ago, uh, when it was discovered through an uh, infrared reflectogram that the underdrawing of the painting corresponds precisely to what one sees in the drawing. There are some notable differences between the drawing and the finished version of the painting. And this is what had misled scholars to think, well, there must have been another drawing between this one and the final work. But instead, what we discover is that Fontormo went from this drawing directly to the panel and then continued to work on the composition directly on the panel. And some of those changes are now visible with the naked eye as pentimenti uh, for visitors to the gallery. It will be very interesting to compare the drawing and the painting to look for these differences and then to look carefully at the painting to see if you can see evidence for uh, how the um, how Pontormo continued to elaborate his composition. One area, for example, in which this is so clear is in the area of the feet. In the drawing, you can see Pontormo uh, continuously redrawing the contours of the feet so that he can get their position just right. And in the painting, you can see some areas in which uh, previous versions of the feet are now visible uh, underneath the surface paint layer, uh, and that he continued to make corrections and adjustments to how those were set. The other big difference um, that's immediately noticeable is that Elizabeth's handmaiden uh, in the drawing is looking at Mary, uh, and in the painting she's looking right out at us, um, which seems like a pretty big change. <laughs> Um, well, and another uh, huge difference between the drawing as we now see it and the painting, and this also misled scholars up until uh, this exhibition uh, catalog, um, is that the left-hand side of the drawing is missing. We did not know this before, and so it was thought that there must have been a different version of this composition that included the architecture on the left-hand side, but we can now be certain uh, that the drawing was trimmed on its left-hand side, which is a very normal thing that happens to old master drawings. Their edges got ratty in the artist's studio and they were later trimmed down or trimmed down to fit into some collector's album. Um, it's almost surprising that nobody had noticed this before in essence. Um, mm. Yes, Pontormo made lots of different adjustments. The, um, the young handmaiden uh, to the left of the Virgin Mary, her head was made more vertical, looking directly out at us, whereas in the drawing, it is tilted off to the side in a kind of a delicate and elegant gesture. Uh, so clearly this was another aspect that Pontormo felt needed reinforcement to arrive at um, the perfect compositional solution, something that was truly arresting that would stop us in our tracks and make us look at this painting with great attention. And finally, the shadows over the faces of the figures don't line up to there being a single light source. So, for example, the right side of Mary's face, the side of her face that is uh, presented to the viewer, us, uh, is in full shadow, which renders the face having shadow, if you will, on uh, Elizabeth's attendant as, as not possible. <laughs> Is there an iconographic reason for this? Is it pictorial and Pitormo's way of, of focusing our eye and creating kind of a further tension between our gaze and the figure's gaze? Why do you think there appear to be two light sources? This is an extraordinary question. I have to say a very original question. Um, the light is uh, obviously fundamental. It's fundamental to all painting, particularly figurative painting. And from the 15th century in Florence, 
uh, one of the great innovations was the introduction of cast shadows, uh, probably by Masaccio at the beginning of the 15th century. Pontormo is one of those artists who looks back, as we said, he was looking back not only at earlier Renaissance works, but also at things from the medieval tradition in Florence. He is well versed in, uh, in local practice. And he uses light. I, I think we are supposed to read the light as coming from the left very, very strongly. And that is why the Virgin's Mar the Virgin Mary's head is, in essence, in in shadow. Uh, the most strongly lit part of her body are her shoulders and the back of her head. The figure that is cast in strongest light is Elizabeth. Yeah. She has yeah. this uh, almost blinding white light illuminating her face. And this uh, is meant to suggest the idea of a very, very strong raking light from left to right. And I do think that that has an iconographic purpose. I think that he is drawing our attention to the importance of Elizabeth, something that is reinforced by another aspect of the composition. When we look at the Florentine tradition of how to represent the subject of the visitation, we discover that the visitation takes place in two basic forms. Generally, uh, St. Elizabeth kneels, bows, or inclines her head to uh, the Virgin Mary to indicate the Virgin's greater status and the greater importance of the child that she's bearing. Um, but there's also another Florentine tradition in which St. Elizabeth stands erect almost at the same height as the Virgin Mary. This is the tradition that comes from the baptistry. And it's not surprising that it comes from there because that is a church dedicated to St. John the Baptist who is in St. Elizabeth's womb uh, in the at the moment of the visitation. So, in contexts in which greater devotion is being shown, um, not just to St. Elizabeth herself, but particularly to her child, the Baptist, something very frequent in Florence where he was the patron saint, um, it would make sense that Pontormo sought to uh, find a way to indicate something special about Elizabeth's status in this context. It's also a way of suggesting that Elizabeth is in part being illuminated by the Virgin Mary by the child that she's bearing, uh, which also has obviously great devotional import, and allowed Montormo to do something else extraordinary. When you look closely at the painting, you can see that he used this opportunity of using backlighting on the Virgin Mary to illuminate her face and to give her a kind of resonant, rosy pink glow. And it, it is a most remarkable effect for the representation of her skin color. Uh, but it also allowed him to use a very, very old tradition of uh, black and red contour lines to suggest the idea of light coming from behind. And it, it makes a, a most extraordinary representation for the, for the Virgin Mary's face in this painting. There's also a lot of light on Elizabeth's hand as, as Elizabeth reaches out to greet Mary. And um, I, I remember thinking when I was last standing in front of the painting, that kind of the closest thing to the viewer is that hand and then that hand being so brightly lit really really pulls us in and and and, and makes the moment alive um in it's, a really neat way that's a terrific observation because of course the whole subject of the painting the narrative subject the story that's being told is the greeting that's being exchanged and that is done through the touch of their hands so um the light is being used once again to draw our attention to what's important uh in in the painting itself pontormo um 
really ceased after painting this uh, to a large extent, the process of making complex architectural settings for his works. He continued to do so to some limited extent, but mostly he was really only interested in the expressive uh, possibilities of the human figure. And in this way, he found a, a very, very kindred spirit in Michelangelo himself. In fact, just after the siege, Michelangelo would choose Pontormo as the artist to execute a work from one of his own designs. And it was a way of saying that uh, Michelangelo recognized Pontormo as the greatest living painter in Florence at that moment. Bruce Edelstein, thanks very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.